Well, once again, let me say welcome to Wrightsville Assembly of God. I'm so glad for this opportunity that I have to present the Word of God to you on this Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, this year has been, uh, well, it's not even worth giving too much sermon time to. You know what kind of year it's been. But there's a lot of directions I could have taken a Christmas Eve service, let me just tell you. As my mind was thinking back on 2020, one thought that really stood out to me, though, and, and really became a catalyst for where we're headed in the next few moments. This year has felt like a year for me where there's been a lot of pressure to say something. I don't know if you've felt it before, but with so many different issues in our world and so many different things that people are dealing with and, and, and stuff in the news and stuff going on, there's that pressure that, that you got to say something. And for me, it, it, it usually has manifest as like a conversation I'm having with people, and then all of a sudden another conversation starts in or after that conversation, you know, usually out of the corner of somebody's mouth, and it's like, hey, what do you think of all this election stuff? And all of a sudden, you're like, ah, I got to say something. Or what do you think of them, like, taking down the Confederate memorials? Or, what do you think of all this Russian collusion? Or what do you think of the COVID vaccine? And on and on, we have moments this year. Anybody had those moments where you were like, oh, okay, you're just going to, okay, I got I to say something. And it feels like we're in, a, in, a, in an era where everybody has to have a cause and a stance. I tested this theory against one of the most reliable news sources in 2020, Facebook. <laughs> Did you know on Facebook, you know, many of you have done this before, you, there's an area where you can change your profile to have a frame. You can frame your profile uh, with a cause. And so you just go in and you, you search out your cause and somebody somewhere some graphics designer has created a frame. And if you click on that frame, it all of a sudden becomes the border for your Facebook status. The idea is simple, that when people scroll across your face, they see what you stand for. And, and, and I was amazed at the options. In fact, I tested the theory. I just started randomly typing words in the search bar for Facebook frames. And it didn't matter what word I put in, they had options for it. I mean, I, I, could, I, could, I could make a statement about anything. Even this morning, I was still like testing the theory a little bit. I pulled out my phone at the breakfast table, and, and my middle daughter, Macy, I said, give me another word. Just give me a random word. She said, knuckles. I was like, knuckles. I, I punched it in. Sure enough, there's the Brass Knuckle Society, man. You, you, can, you can make it your Facebook frame so when people see your face, they know what your cause is. With all the causes, you know, there are some that are worthy of us giving, you know, framing our face for a day, or maybe even for like a week, or maybe like your grandmother, somebody shared a frame with her last Easter, and she doesn't know how to change it, so it still says, come celebrate Easter 2019 with us, you know. But aside from all that, we all know that there are some causes, there are some ideas that they don't just frame our social media status, they frame our lives, I'm talking about what I would call a prevailing thought. It's, it's like the anchor points for all of your other big ideas. They, they come under this. It's, if, if I could say it this way, it's like the hinges on the door that all your other ideas swing on that hinge. It's a prevailing thought. I read one that A.W. Tozer wrote years ago, and I believe he's right. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. 
I believe he's right. I mean, that's a big statement, but consider it for a moment. How you see God, it will affect how you see yourself. It will affect your future. It'll reflect the the purpose and the values of your life or your afterlife. And and if you have an astigmatism in your vision of what God is like, it's going to distort everything else. Just for a moment, imagine when you close your eyes. What image is developed in the dark room of your mind about God? For some people, he's, he's standoffish and aloof. For others, he's, he's smiling, maybe even laughing. He's embracing. For others, it's a, a finger pointed at you. It's anger. Or maybe you close your eyes tight and you try to get a picture of God, but there's nothing there but a blank canvas. But I believe our prevailing thoughts are the key thoughts that all the other thoughts swing on. And I want to just give you one, one prevailing thought today, and and it's in bold letters behind me, and the thought is this, he shall reign. At, At the macro level, let me tell you what that means for me. That means that I believe right now that God is still suspending the stars in their place with the very words that he spoke in creation. I got a chance this week to, to look through a big telescope at some things in space that I've never seen before. And, and I have this confidence that although that's stuff that I can't comprehend, God can. And his word still holds true. Now listen, down here, we've got environmental concerns. We, we've got the, the global warming issue that's always before us and sometimes you're asked to take a stand on things. But above all that, I'm talking about a bigger thought. Above all of those thoughts is this reality. The word of the Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord would say this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So when you go to the very beginning of this book, what you discover is that before God ever made man in his own image, he created a habitat that was perfectly sustainable for them to thrive, you know, not another planet like ours. But God created a perfectly hospitable environment for us to thrive in. And when I go to the back of the book, I see that this planet that God created for us is going to burn with a fervent heat. That's what the word of God says. But he's also so faithful in that when you get to the end of the story, it says God will create a new heavens and a new earth. So that the people of God may dwell with him in Righteous. Now look, you might not be able to explain all of that. You might not be able to make sense of all the end time events, but you can read this book and you can get a bigger understanding that understands this. He shall reign. I mean, in the beginning, at the end, this is the prevailing truth that I know at a macro level. I mean, like every other red-blooded American, I have political views. Not here to share them with you tonight, but there are desires in my heart. For our nation, there are things that I would like to see happen, things that I wish were different. But above all that, I know that Proverbs 21 says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. God even said to King Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, The Most High is sovereign Lord over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. So so at a national level and, and at a global level, I have this prevailing thought that regardless of what's going on, he shall reign. And at the micro level, it's just as true. It means for me in my, in my own home, 
in my own marriage, raising my own kids, whatever I'm facing, whatever I'm dealing with in my finances or, or, or in my emotions, I believe that God is the authority in those moments. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not even one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. See, I hear a promise like that, and I remember that God is not just orchestrating the, the cosmos or, or setting kings and authorities in place, that God is keeping track of which numbers of my hair went down the drain this morning. He didn't say he's counting them. He said they're numbered. There it goes, 679, right down the drain. And a whole lot more with it this week. I know, no matter what I'm facing, in the smallest moments and areas of my life, he shall reign. Listen, what, I, what I'm talking about is not, this is not some 2020 Jedi mind trick to overcome a bad year. What I'm talking about is a promise that is as old as the story of creation, and it is threaded right through the heart of the Christmas story. When you go back to Genesis, to the very beginning, you see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and, and they broke the one command that God gave them, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they, they partook of the fruit, they ate of the tree, they broke that command. How many of you know we don't need a lot of commands to be sinners? We just need one, right? I mean, you only need, if, if there's only one rule for your kid, don't eat the cookie before dinner. How many of you know they're going for the cookie? Every time. Like, it's just who we are. They had one command, and they broke it. And the serpent who deceived them was there in the garden. And so in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus speaks prophetically to the serpent, and he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What was he saying? Even back in the Garden of Eden, God was saying, you, you may have won this battle today, but there is a war coming. And you will strike Jesus' heel with the venom of death at the cross but he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to crush your head through the resurrection. Jesus is being prophesied about in the Garden of Eden. And what is God saying? He's saying, he shall reign. Then you get into Isaiah, into the middle of your Bible. And the prophet Isaiah, he spoke some 750 years before the Christmas story ever started to play out. And he's speaking to a nation that is war-torn. Their government's been destroyed. And they're looking for one of their own kings to be set back on the throne. They're looking for redemption. And this message that Isaiah gives, it starts to sound like a lot of the restoration processes or promises in the Old Covenant. He says in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, up to this point, it sounds like a typical restoration promise. We need a, a, a son to take the throne. We need him to carry the government. We need him to be wonderful like David. We need him to be a counselor like King Solomon. But then all of a sudden, 
Isaiah kind of shifts into a different key. Because he said this king is not just coming to operate on this level of national crisis. He has a word that is so much bigger. He has a kingdom that will not just be for a lifetime, but forever. And the only way you can have a king sit on the throne forever is if he's more than a wonderful counselor. And so he goes on and he says not only is he wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God. Everlasting father, prince of peace and of his greatness and of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. How's it going to happen? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. And now you move forward centuries into the New Testament and to the scriptures that are so familiar to us in this Christmas season. And a doctor by the name of Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to a young maiden named Mary. In Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 30, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And then the angel begins to describe to Mary what this son is going to be like. She be they begin to describe to her what he'll do. And, and if you've been paying attention so far, this ought to sound really familiar. Because the angel Gabriel tells her, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Look at verse 33. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I believe that verse right there probably landed a lot harder for Mary than it did for you just now. I mean, let's be honest, verse 33, that doesn't even usually make it on the Christmas card, right? I mean, we pick the other verses about, you know, a virgin will conceive or shepherds in the field or wise men from afar, but we don't put verse 33 on most of our Christmas cards. But can I tell you, when Mary heard it, I believe she heard something way more significant, and I don't want us to miss it. I mean, she's just been dealt the most astounding, personal and life-changing news that any young woman could ever get, you're pregnant. <laughs> and so she's dealing with that, and she's trying to process it on so many levels. And one level is obviously the natural level. This is not only amazing and, and unbelievable, but she knows this is impossible because her response to the angel in verse 34 is, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Now, pay close attention to what the angel says next. For no word from God will ever fail. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I can't help but wonder when I read that, what, 
What word was the angel talking about when he said no word from God will ever fail? What word was Mary thinking about when she said, let your word be fulfilled in me? Now, on one level, it could be any word from God, and I think that's kind of the point. No word from God ever fails. If God said something, how many of you know that settles it? I grew up in church, and people used to say, well, if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And the older I got and the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, we don't really need that middle part about I believe it. If God said it, that settles it. And Mary receives this word from God. And the word that I believe stood out to her above all the rest was the word that he spoke to her in verse 33. He shall reign. Why do I think that's the word? Well, look at the next paragraph in the story. And it says immediately Mary got up and she went to the hill country to visit Elizabeth. This is her cousin that the angel said, even though she's an old lady, she, she's past the childbearing age, she's pregnant, she's now in her sixth month. Mary goes to visit her, and the Bible tells us there in Luke 1 that when Mary gets close to her and Elizabeth hears her voice, the moment she hears Mary's voice, the baby in her womb jumped and leaped, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit right then. That's incredible. I mean, that, that baby in Elizabeth's womb is going to grow up to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the greatest prophet who ever lived. Jesus' words, not mine. He's going to be the one to stand on the banks of the Jordan and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But even now, he's so prophetic. At six months gestation, he hears the voice of Jesus' mother, and he kicks, and he knows this is the fetus to lead us. That's the Son of God. <laughs> and Mary knows it, and Elizabeth knows it, because look at Elizabeth's response in this moment. Elizabeth says in verse 45, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. What promise was Elizabeth so excited about? Well, let's go a little farther, because the next thing to happen is Mary then responds with a song. It's called the Magnificat. It's, it's Mary's song of praise. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And I think the words of her song begin to communicate to us what's flowing from her heart. Now, i got to be honest, when I read this story, and I try to contextualize it and make it real in my life, in this moment, and this is not the, the themes that I would expect a young girl who just found out she was pregnant to be talking to God about. I mean, if I'm imagining the conversation and you just found out and now it's been affirmed by your older cousin, you are in fact with child. I think, I don't know, I'm talking to God about some different things. Maybe, maybe the conversation is about, you know, Lord, help me not to have morning sickness in the first trimester. I heard that's pretty bad. Or, you know, God, I pray that my ankles don't disappear. I, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe she's saying, God, you, you got you to gotta speak to Joseph. You got to go and make this make sense to him because I can't figure out for the life of me how I'm going to tell him that his fiance is pregnant and the father is the father. How's that going to make sense? How's he going to make sense of this? But when you read Mary's song, and I encourage you to take time to read it, it's verse 46 through 55. In fact, I encourage you to read chapter 2 as well. Before you open all the presents, read Luke 2. Give you a little spoiler here. There's a baby born in Bethlehem. It's really exciting. 
But in, in Luke 1, verse 46 through 55, she sings a song about God's faithfulness from one generation to the next generation. She talks about how God has performed mighty deeds with his outstretched arm. She talks about how God has brought down rulers from their thrones. This is a, a young virgin girl who's responding to something that the Holy Spirit has made clear to her through the angel. Let's just read the last stanza of the song. Just the, just the last refrain in verse 54 and 55. She says, He has helped his servant Israel. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. There it is again. What promise was she so wound up and singing about? What promise was it? I'm going to tell you tonight. It was the promise that the angel gave her in verse 33 when he said, He shall reign over Jacob's descendants forever. It's the promise that Isaiah spoke 750 years earlier when he said, and he shall reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. It's the same promise that God spoke to Abraham as he looked up at the night sky. It's the same promise that God prophesied in the Garden of Eden when he said, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. He shall reign and she waited for this promise and she anticipated this promise and it was bigger than every other obstacle in her life and soon this promise provoked a song and submission and soon her son would be born out of this promise that he shall reign in the face of impossible circumstances Put yourself in the narrative. Facing things that, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do next. I don't know what to say about this. And maybe you've been there. Maybe this year has felt that way. Maybe this Christmas has felt that way where you're going, I don't know what my next move is. I don't know what to say about this. I don't know what to think about that. I don't know where I stand on this issue. And, and I certainly don't know what tomorrow holds. And yet in the midst of that, Mary's response was simply, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. Why? Because she had a prevailing thought. He shall reign. He shall reign. And when we peek ahead in the back of the book, we get a glimpse behind the curtain of what's still yet to happen. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Those words have been immortalized and familiarized to us in the Christmas season thanks to Handel's Messiah. And every time we even read him, we can almost hear the melody line, and he shall reign forever and ever. And to that I say hallelujah, 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 amen. He shall reign. That's the picture from the beginning to the end of the story, not just at the macro level, but even in your own heart and your life. And I want to challenge you today with this promise, because it's the promise that drove Joseph to take Mary home to be his wife. It's the promise 
that motivated the shepherds to go out and be the first evangelists to, to tell the good news. It's the promise that compelled wise men to seek a star in the east and come to worship a newborn king. And I just wonder what's compelling you. What's driving you? What's pushing you this season? One prevailing thought. I want to give you an opportunity today to respond in a practical but a very significant way to this one thought that Jesus reigns. I want to invite you to receive communion today. And there should have been a little bag sitting on your seat near you. I would encourage you to go ahead and open that. You don't have to peel back the top layer on that cup yet, but I would encourage you to go ahead and find the communion cup. And as we take out these elements for communion, I want to share one more verse of scripture with you. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. It says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, I can't help but think when I see that verse, that feels as prophetic about 2020 as it does about when it was spoken. And it wasn't even spoken when Matthew wrote it. He was actually quoting Isaiah chapter 12. It was written centuries before. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes it at this moment and at this time to communicate something powerful. That we're in a time of great darkness. And on a people who are living in the land of the shadow of death. I, I had a conversation just this afternoon before an earlier service with one of our church members that said, Pastor, please keep my family in your prayer. My mother, my, my brother, my sister, my aunt, they all tested positive for covid we're living in the land, the valley, the shadow of death. And Matthew writes that about his time. He says, this is what's happening. And then the next verse says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He hadn't begun to preach before, but from that time on he began to preach in other words he shall reign was always a promise it was always something that was to come but in this moment it moved from being a promise to being a person because how many of you know when the king walks in the kingdom has come and the king of kings jesus christ is standing there and in a moment of darkness in a moment overshadowed by death at that time, Jesus stepped on the scene and began his ministry. All through this Advent season, we've been, we've been turning on the lamps of Advent with expectation for the moment of his coming. 
We, we started by lighting up this lamp of hope, believing that hope can be an anchor for the soul in a time of turmoil. And then the next week, we, we lit up the lamp of love. In a world that's full of vitriol and hatred, the love of Christ can overwhelm us. And then we lit up the lamp of joy because Nehemiah 8 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength and oh, how we need his strength. And last Sunday, we lit up the light of peace. The lamp of peace can shine even in the midst of a broken and a tumultuous world. Because Jesus said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. But we haven't yet lit the Christ candle. And I want to ask my wife to come and, and light this candle in the front of the room that symbolizes the reality of Jesus coming to the earth. And as true as it was when Matthew wrote it and when Isaiah prophesied it, it's true for us today. We have good news. The kingdom has come. He came to dwell with us as a baby in a manger. He came to crush the head of the serpent by dying on Golgotha's hill. And he comes to you right now to fill you with this Holy Spirit. And one day you can rest assured he's coming again to rule and to reign in righteousness. So I want to invite you in this moment to make a statement of faith. That's what that's what communion is. This is the believer's cup. And when I say that, what I mean is it's just juice and a wafer if, if it doesn't have spiritual significance to you. In, in fact, if you don't believe, if, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you haven't put your faith in him and you don't want to now, let me give you a little pro tip. These crackers don't taste that good anyway. Just skip it, okay? Just skip it if it doesn't have a spiritual significance to you. But oh, if you have faith, even if you've never had faith before, but in this moment you would say, I want Jesus to, to rule and to reign in my life. I want to be able to face impossible situations and unanswerable questions and still have the confidence to say, Lord, let your word be fulfilled in me. If that's your heart today, then I encourage you to receive these emblems. The wafer that you can get to by peeling back that clear cellophane layer. It represents the body of Jesus. I'm so thankful that Jesus came in a body. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. If Jesus had just been a deity in heaven, we wouldn't have known that he was acquainted with our suffering, that he was familiar with our pain. But we see the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross, and we know I serve a God who knows what I'm going through. And we receive the cup that represents his blood. And we're so thankful for the blood because the word of God says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no grace. We know it's not something we earn. It's something we receive. Grace is available like a, a gift under the tree. You, you don't purchase it. You, you receive it. And today, whether you've been serving the Lord for years and years, or maybe you never have, but in this moment, you're saying, you know what, I, I, 
I need Jesus to reign. I need this to be the prevailing thought of my life. That no matter what I'm facing or what I'm going through or how impossible the news that I'm getting seems, I can say with confidence, Lord, let your word be fulfilled in me. Because Jesus, Colossians 1.17 says, was before all things and in him all things hold together. So Father, today we take these emblems Lord, as we receive them, Lord, we're making a statement of faith today. We give you our lives, Jesus. We give you our confidence. We put our hope in you, Jesus. You alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And we know no one comes to the Father except through you. So Jesus, with hearts of gratitude, and submission we say Lord let your word be accomplished in us and we receive you Jesus into our lives let's eat the bread together